welcome to our podcast program, The Intersection. Today, I have the honor and pleasure to invite my friend, peer, and colleague, uh, Jessica Hailman, to the program and have a chat with us. Uh, welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Joe. Great to be joining you um, in this virtual space to talk about intersectionality and leadership and how those things interplay with each other and the work that we're currently doing at the Center for Women's Leadership. As Joe mentioned, my name is Jessica Heilman. I use she, her pronouns, and I identify as white, heterosexual, and new parent, and currently able-bodied. And those are some of the lenses that I bring to my work and thinking about human-centered and intersectional leadership programming and spaces. So great to be here. Thanks for inviting me to be part of this conversation. I love that you just identify yourself as, um, you know, uh, the identities you mentioned, because we are only recording audio. So we actually don't have a video for the audience. So it's important to let people know, you know, what we are like. So I really appreciate you doing that. Um, so, uh, so the way Jessica and I met was me sending a cold email to Jessica, I think uh, almost two years ago, maybe a little bit shy from two years. Um, it was when I um, started my practice intersectional group and it was early on and I came across a newsletter from Jessica, uh, Center for Women's Leadership, and they mentioned intersectional feminism. And I got really excited because at the time, we actually didn't see a lot of uh, terms that are around intersectional feminism or intersectional leadership. And of course, things have changed a little bit over time, but I was so excited, I decided to send her a cold email. I don't even think I sent to you a personal like work email. It was probably like a generic info at something something email and (laughs) (laughs) to my surprise in a very nice way I heard back um so because of that we're now connected so I would love to maybe invite Jessica to share you know your thoughts on um intersectional feminism sure absolutely I think um, yeah, I'm realizing two years ago, oh my gosh, it's already been a couple of years and been so thankful to have you as a thought partner to get together with and idea share and think about um, leadership and think about intersectionality, equity, justice, all the things and threads of where our conversations have taken us. And so, you know, I think what I personally think about intersectional feminism, it's acknowledging intersecting identities that each of us bring and how that impacts our, you know, kind of operating within the systems and structures that exist, um, you know, thinking about race, ability, gender, uh, um, sexual orientation, all of the ways in which we move through the world and the ways that systems of oppression interact and allow us to exist and have livelihood within those systems. And I think, you know, intersectional uh, feminism, you know, immediately people are like feminism and may have a response to that. And so I think maybe we should start there and chat a little bit about feminism and why intersectional feminism is kind of why we need additional word in that to kind of express what we're talking about. 
Mm-hmm. And then maybe why we sometimes don't use feminism as well. So maybe that will be an interesting place to to start. We'll see. Um, I think that for feminism, you know, we think about lots of different waves of feminism. And in that, there's been who was and wasn't involved in that movement, just like any movement. And so for me, one of the reasons I started indicating intersectional feminism in our work is that we don't just want to have one type of way. And what I think I'm really trying to say is white leadership or dominant culture leadership being the way that people um, engage in leadership and leadership traits. And so when I first started using intersectional or intersectional feminists with our leadership programming was really to make sure that we are acknowledging intersecting identities, acknowledging systems, and acknowledging that we were creating space differently than how space was originally created in a feminist movement. And so I'll share that as a little bit of context. And I may have drifted off a little bit of your original question. So I'll, I'll send it back to you to re-guide us. Oh, no, not at all. I think that's actually a really good call. And um, it would be difficult to talk about intersectional feminism without acknowledging, you know, the conventional feminism is largely white-centered. Um, and oftentimes um, when we talk about or, you know, when we talked about feminism, um, it's uh, centered around like uh, white feminism and which oftentimes upholds the uh, patriarchy and white supremacy. So I think it is important to call out, you know, the context, the background and the history of feminism and how it has been evolving into intersectional feminism, which is, of course, more inclusive and more equitable. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And then you mentioned, you know, leadership programming as center for women's leadership. Um, I mean, of course, for for women's leadership, uh, we are focusing on uh, gender and gender justice, etc., and how to empower women and especially emerging leaders, right? Because Center for Women's Leadership um, is associated with uh, Portland State University. So how do we um, educate and help uh, future women leaders to uh, grow and lead? I think that is the kind of focus of the center. So I would love to invite you to talk about um, your leadership programming and how it has, just like feminism to intersectional feminism, how it's been evolving over the years. Yeah, absolutely. So we're coming up on, oh my gosh, a little over 20 years now. So I think we're 20 and a half years old if we get to celebrate half birthdays. And (laughs) I mean, we love a half birthday. Might as well. More reason to celebrate, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think our approach has been to really think about spaces that are focused on building community and allowing people to explore their own identities that they hold and to have an understanding of how those intersecting identities move them through life and how it plays in with leadership spaces. And so, Our participants in our programming are from all over the place in their interests and what they are studying, as well as the actual, you know, kind of real world experience that they bring to our programming because Portland State University serves such non-traditional undergraduate students. And so we have this beautiful opportunity often to have an intergenerational space. And also, I would also say that we have 
um, representation in our programming, when we say women, that that term has often broadened. And when we're thinking about the spaces that we're building, we're thinking about gender expansiveness as well, because we know that the terms within gender and binary are evolving, particularly with our emerging leaders and how they identify with their own gender identity. And we also know that the patriarchy impacts more than women. Um, and so we're, we're noticing that as we, we have folks come into our program. And so we've really wanted to build space that acknowledges some of those affinities. And the way that we've done that is to start with race. And mm -hmm. so we do have racial affinity space often, and then what we consider white learning space as well, because of those intersecting identities, yes, um, but also to understand how power is different depending on how you're accepted for who you are and um, the identities that you hold. Uh, just a quick clarification. Did you say white leaning or white learning? White learning. White learning. Thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. And I also learned, I think, from our conversation before, which I find very interesting, is you also help and involve um, folks from rural areas in Oregon to come and participate in the program. Could you share a little bit about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we've made a couple changes in the last couple of years, one of which is to really you know, acknowledge that Oregon is 36 counties and not just kind of that I-5 corridor. And so we've done work to make sure that there are stipend opportunities to participate in programming. And we've done that with both um, a partnership with rural development initiatives in which we were able to bring um, women identified people to Salem, Oregon for an overnight to kind of engage with the Oregon State Legislature. And we had people, I think, coming from six to seven hours away when you think of totally the other side of the state and coming to Salem and, you know, what an experience that is for some people who have not had an opportunity to really be in that side of the state or participate in policymaking process in that way. And then we also provided stipends to our emerging leaders cohort with New Leadership Oregon to ensure that people had transportation or even one participant flying because it ended up being um, less time consuming for them to be able to participate in programming. And so we've gotten creative in both funding and stipending or to make sure that we do really do have people coming from all over the state to be able to participate in programming. And how has it uh, been doing? Like uh, what, what are the comments or feedback you uh, have been received from, you know, participants? Yeah, I think what we've really been excited about overall is that we're seeing a decrease in barriers to participating. And some of that is around, you know, acknowledging that particularly in the pandemic context and current job market, while we're serving emerging leaders, that often means college enrolled. And a lot of, you know, if you will, intersecting challenges for mm -hmm. how people are and are not able to participate in programs that are outside of the academic schedule. These are non-credit leadership development programs. And so we have to acknowledge that people are giving up livelihood by taking time off work. They often have caregiving responsibilities of family members or dependents that they are responsible for. 
And also um, access to transportation has been a huge issue for, for many students to be able to participate, to have a vehicle that they have access to for multiple days. And so those are some of the main things that we're hearing. And then I think a large thing that I didn't mention up front, a barrier to participating is the pacing of our program mm -hmm. and really addressing people's accessibility needs for being in that space. And so some of that has been making sure that we have um, incorporated time for rest mm -hmm. and individual reflection time into our programming and really acknowledging um, principles of trauma-informed care into our leadership programming to not just kind of move from you know, panel to panel to panel or, you know, workshop to workshop right. and really give people that space and that time, you know, depending on all the different types of, you know, neurodivergent learners that join our programming as well. And we're always getting better at that. You know, I think that's still a practice that we're learning in leadership spaces of how do you pace learning and socializing in a way that allows a lot of different types of folks to engage. That is so interesting. I actually would love to maybe explore a little bit more on, um, you know, around resting and uh, having trauma-informed programming because, you know, we are, you know, at the end of the year. And for me, myself, I haven't really taken advantage of um, resting, really. Um, so I have been thinking about, you know, how do I kind of encourage myself or give myself permission to rest. And I think that's a kind of a big component that's missing from leadership development is we really emphasize on doing, but we don't really emphasize on being. And because as leaders, we are always kind of go, go, go. Um, but how do we um, take care of ourselves in order to show up and go back to our community and do even a better job? So I'm curious to see, you know, as as the leader of the Center for Women's Leadership and in your community, how do you, and also, of course, you mentioned you just became a parent and that might have made the resting more challenging. So I'm curious to see, you know, your experience and thoughts on resting because we also heard about theories and ideas around um, resting is actually, uh, how do you say it? Resting is progressive. Resting is doing actually as well. So um, maybe help us um, process that idea. Sure. I, lo I love to have this conversation because I always learn every time I, I talk about this because I think we can't ignore white supremacy culture when we think about resting. And, you know, I think about kind of the traits, some of the traits of white supremacy culture around uh, quality over quantity and um, urgency culture and productivity and perfectionism. And wow, none of those things really leave space for resting or, you know, considering all the ways in which we are human and our humanness and, I think a lot of folks felt that perhaps the pandemic was a time where we would start noticing that humanness more and make space for it. And um, I'm finding that maybe that's, that didn't stick and mm -hmm. there's kind of a doubling down around productivity. And so I think that that has been really interesting, you know, acknowledging that kind of urgency coming back. And then what do we do with that? 
And then I also can't think about rest and the practice of rest without a lot of really incredible, I would say, um, Black thought leaders in this mm-hmm. space around rest as liberation, rest as being radical practice. And so I really want to make sure that we vocalize and center that. When I'm learning about rest, most of that's coming from um, the NAP ministry yeah. or others that are really leading the voice in that space. And so I want to make sure that I'm not taking credit for really incredible folks that are thinking about rest differently and calling upon people with, you know, racialized identities that rest is actually taking care of themselves. Rest is different than recovery and, you know, taking kind of a break from that participating within the need to hurry and Mm -hmm. to grind. And I think that's a really different way of thinking about it. Um, I think in my own life, I'm constantly unlearning. I'm constantly looking at not justifying or finding my worthiness in the hustle Mm. or in the productivity and recognizing that when we slow down and when we actually take time to think about the work that we are making space for and also the who we're working with, we really are actually getting to center more equity and justice in our work. And so the more you prioritize, what I'm finding is the more I prioritize rest and slowing down, the more meaningful and intentional I'm being about who we're partnering with and the conversations that I'm making time for. Um, That is super interesting. I never thought it that way. The more we rest, the more we can kind of like center and regulate ourselves and show up more. Um, How do you, um, how do you associate or compare, maybe it's not an accurate word, even compare, um, between resting and healing? Because we talk about trauma-informed programming and leadership development. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. to learn your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think there's some parallel processes that happen within that. Some of it is just recognizing that busy is not always better and actually having space on the calendar. I think there's a um, tendency in leadership spaces to move, you know, kind of this back to back, you know, I remember, I'll always remember during the pandemic as we were, you know, kind of working from home and um, my partner would hear me on the Zoom calls and like one would end and then I would be like, goodbye. And then hello. And he was like, it was the most bizarre thing to hear you just like close one conversation and just start another one. And there was no processing time between. And so one of the things I'm holding on to is making sure that I have that opportunity for processing space and follow up and not feeling the urgency to respond within the same day of that conversation happening. So I think that's a piece at play for me. But I think if we're thinking about healing, I mean, some of it is like, actually sleeping, actually like (laughs) hydrating, actually doing those kind of basic needs. Um, But then also pairing that with, for me personally, thinking as a white leader in this space, um, I have a therapist that has a social justice orientation to her work. And I make time and space for those conversations and accountability. And then I also have a leadership coach that specifically calls me in, Mm -hmm. calls me in on my whiteness. And I think that those two people for my own healing and healing from, you know, having 
um, you know, coming from a colonizer history within my family, coming from, you know, being in leadership spaces where my age and my gender and my race, my intersecting identities have all interplayed with each other and how I show up and how I understand the power that I hold. So Mm -hmm. for me, that's the healing is some of that inner work and pairing that with actually taking the time to think about how I practice leadership differently than what dominant culture calls upon me to do to be seen as a leader in the spaces I operate in. Yeah, I think that's uh, beautifully sad. And I think um, you can, the fact that you can just talk about the power you hold and talk about the um, kind of colonialism background you come from, and I can tell and you can talk about these at ease and comfortable with it. I, I, I don't, I think most people cannot have this com- kind of conversation um, comfortably. And hopefully we will be able to get to that space uh, where people who are white identified and in leadership position will have the courage to acknowledge that and actually work on it. So I think that's actually setting a really good example. And it always kind of blows my mind that, you know, people who are in power and have privilege are able to just look at privilege in the eye and then try to do something with it. And I think that kind of leads to my next curiosity is um, you are a white leader. And as you mentioned, and um, my guess is it took a while for you to come to the place where you are, where you feel like you can use your privilege and power to do good. And um, and I, I personally don't take that for granted because I, I know it takes a lot of work to get to the place where you are today. So I'm curious, you know, um, if you can just briefly share that journey and also maybe give advice to folks who may be getting ready to take that journey, you know, having that realization like, hey, I'm in this position of power. Um, I know where I'm from. And um, maybe for a moment I felt ashamed about it, but I don't want that shame to uh, be an obstacle. And I want to acknowledge that and become the leader I want to be. So if you can share that. Whew, so much to unpack and all of that. Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. That's that's why we're here. That's why we're having this conversation. I think I think the first and first thing I want to mention is that I am always evolving and always on this journey and always learning better ways and, and acknowledging ways that I didn't show up well. And I think as soon as I can accept that and and recognize that there is no perfectionism and that there is no arriving in this journey. And instead, it's understanding that, like, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to mess up all the time. I have been socialized and brought up white. And I've been brought up, you know, in in thinking um, in, in the ways that, you know, white supremacy culture is the way to lead. So I'm going to constantly have to be questioning um, the ways in which I think something is right or the actions or ways that come naturally to me making a decision or taking action. And so I think that that would be one of the first things that I would offer. And I would also offer that this work is uncomfortable. 
I don't know if that ever is going to get comfortable. And so one of the kind of muscles, if you will, because I think of this as a practice or like if you're going to work out, like, you know, that you have to build muscles in this area and part of building muscles in this area, it's painful. I don't know about you if you've ever like done a workout or like, you know, you're like, you know, oh, gosh, I'm really sore. It's because you're working muscles that, you know, maybe unfamiliar or new. And so I often think about, um, you know, if something's like, ooh, ouch, like this doesn't feel right. I immediately want to work towards why and give my sa- myself space to process either, you know, by myself and or with kind of those friends that you can call into a kind of critical analysis with you, which I think is crucial for white people to have in leadership. And make sure that those are not always your, you know, friends of color. <laughs> make sure that you have some kind of white trusted colleagues. Um, and I have a couple of those that I'm like, I really need to talk this through with you and think about, um, you know, how I can show up maybe not just in a, you know, performative ally way, but more of a accomplice in this space. And what does that look like? And, you know, when do I speak up? When do I not? When do I intervene? When do I do not? And that's a little bit either oring because then there's like 50 options in between to do or to not do. Mm-hmm. But I think that that is how I've operated a bit in that space. And that is what I would offer to, you know, others with some shared identities that I bring to my work is that you've got to embrace that this practice is uncomfortable and likely always will be. You have to embrace that there's no arriving at being expert all the time, because I think the ways in which we understand racism and sexism and, you know, gender justice and all of these isms and interact and, you know, interacting Mm -hmm. um, systems is going to evolve as our capacity to hold it and to understand it and change how we do things evolves. So that's that's some of where I would start with that question and mm-hmm. and curious if if there's a spot that you want me to elaborate on more. Um I I have I mean I'm very impressed by the building muscles analogy. Um you're absolutely right. It's super painful and um I mean I do I'm actually going to my exercise this evening and <laughs> I look forward to it and I do not look forward to it at the same time. Um, so I think that actually maybe describes the discomfort, right? Like as a white leader, you are on this journey and it's probably lifetime. And if we are lucky enough, we'll be able to pass our legacy to the next generation and they can carry on. And mm-hmm. I think that's like something to look forward to and something may not be super kind of uh, comfortable at the same time. But we do want to do it, you know, like if we want to build muscles, like you said, then we have to embrace the pain and the discomfort. So I fully agree with what you said. And one thing I'm still curious about, maybe you can help elaborate a little bit is, you know, how do you find those white trusted colleagues? Because me, um, this is kind of like my... I don't know if it's a flaw or weakness is um, I'm conditioned because I'm a person of color. I'm conditioned to trust other people of color. And I have the tendency of being suspicious or skeptical when a, when a white leader 
um, is showing up. Because I would always question, like, what what is behind it? What is the agenda? Um, so I don't think I've shared this before. But for me, as a person of color, my go-to is always people of color. Um, so how do you find white trusted colleagues? Mm, that's such a great question. Thanks for your vulnerability and trusting me and those that are <laughs> listening to this podcast to share mm. that that's how you've navigated and survived space. And and so true. And I would think that, you know, I'm not, I can't speak on behalf of other mm. people of color, but I feel like that is a theme that I've heard come up, particularly in multiracial leadership spaces of who do I trust and how do I know that I can trust them? Especially because um, we know, and you know, there's scholarship around this. I think last time we were chatting around um, the book on white women and how you know white women specifically perpetuate racism, and I would say white women specifically in leadership spaces by replicating systems of patriarchy to get where they've been and benefit from those systems they automatically perpetuate some of the things that will cause harm and distrust to people of color coming into that space. I think that's really important to bring up in this conversation. I think for me personally, it's um, a lot of relationship building. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is practice, again, from really great thought leaders of color to be thinking about relational practice um, you know, over transactional. And so how do you sit with people with where they're at and learn from them? And then along the way, for me, as I've built those relationships, I have found people at all points in their journey, some of which I can, you know, offer thoughts and grow and learn together, some of which um, are at a different place in their journey. They're on a journey, <laughs> mm. but a different place. And then every once in a while, I have kind of the happy discovery of like, oh, like we can sit in this discomfort together. We can think about, you know, what maybe why something, um, you know, caused the reaction. And then also think about like where that, where in my body is that reaction coming from um, and, and dialogue that through. And so I've, I, there's not a great like, one way to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I think sitting in conversation with people and returning to conversation, and of course, there's some privilege in this, I think, for me, because I'm going to hear and be influenced and impacted differently um, by, you know, kind of crummy, harmful, you know, racist things being said in my presence than you may be in some conversations. And so um, I offer that as imperfect thinking, you know, as the best practice that I have at this time is to, you know, sit in relationship with people and, and believe them when they've shared who they are. And yet recognize that the next time you engage with them, they may be in a different place on their journey. So that's my very imperfect and somewhat um, limited way of thinking about that from my own perspective. And of course, my own privilege, because I'm not I'm not going to be impacted um, within the same way as some of the things that or the beliefs or understanding that people may share in those spaces in 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 a white dialogue. Yeah, I mean, it's always a work in progress. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, perfectionism doesn't exist. So all we can do is just like 
keep improving and keep doing better. Um, so thank you for sharing that. I think my follow up question to this is how do you how do you approach mentorship? So I'm sure you know you have especially you know working with young leaders. Um, there are many folks um, who seek advice from you or folks uh, in your space. How do you approach mentorship and make it more um, equitable and inclusive? Um, mm. Yeah, mentorship is such an interesting, you know, mentorship, leadership, all of these things. I I struggle with them because they they do tend to be, um, you know, kind of entrenched in dominant culture practice and the way that we teach them to people. And there's you know hierarchy within mentor mentee, and right. so, so I'm I'm still struggling with some of this of how do we do it in a way that acknowledges different dimensions of kind of power over, power for, power with. And so I would say that a couple ways that I've approached this is to always name intersecting identities that we have or do not have in common and make sure that I'm naming that although I have good intent, there may be times where my impact is being a white mentor in a multiracial relationship um, with my mentees, Um, you know, take what works for them and leave what doesn't and challenge me. And so that is some of um, the way that I approach that. And of course we have to be careful so that I'm not putting emotional labor on mentees of color in that relationship. So that is definitely an ongoing conversation that I typically have with them. But I think I've found that my, you know, biggest thing that I can offer is to listen and believe. And that to me, instead of, you know, oh, let me impart, my wisdom of how you need to, you know, behave in order to become a leader. Like I can offer different ways that here's some ways that you may approach this. And then, you know, asking those open-ended questions of curiosity back to mentees of, you know, based on what you know about your lived experience, based on, you know, your values, based on your integrity, like how does that feel in your body and really bring it back to themselves as an individual and as a human And then I think when there's spaces where, um, you know, companionship, camaraderie, affinity is so important to people being able to feel safe and to be able to fully um, open up and be their full selves, I've worked to create those opportunities within our team. And so some of that has been, um, you know, if we're working on a challenging shift in the way that we're doing our work or starting some new programming, um, bringing in consultants that can create that affinity space to make sure that the employees or students or interns that are working with us don't have to fully rely upon me Mm -hmm. Um, as their go-to or as their support in a mentor role, that they can have people that have shared identities and create that racial affinity space to have that conversation um, and and do that in a way that doesn't put additional labor upon them, but instead of offers them space where that they can really have um, time to dive into how their identities are showing up in leadership um, and in their work as well. And there's times when I just can't do it. Yeah, I just can't be that voice. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's that's very interesting to me because it makes me think of um, how do we distribute power, right? Like we we want to share the power, we want to 
sometimes delegate as well. And one one thing that I've been thinking about is um, power shared, is um, power doubled, or sometimes multiplied. Um, and well, and, it, and it's feminist. It is. <laughs> it really is. Oh, yeah. I love that. Um, you are so right. It's. I mean. I mean, since you mentioned it, it is feminist and, you know, power sharing, etc. I, I, I have to ask, you know, you're a new parent. Um, congratulations. And, Thank you. Um, it's, um, I know it's a magical journey, has been a magical journey for you. And um, yeah, like parenting is community work right and that means you have to distribute you have to have a group of i don't know grandparents or if we are lucky or we'll have aunties and uncles and um non-binary kind of um relatives quote air quotes to support you and for me that kind of illustrates um, the way we want power and leadership to be is not so concentrated on one person. Because I think at least in the United States, right, we think about family, we think about parenting. It's largely on the mother figure uh, or whoever is performing the um, duties a mother uh, is supposed to do. Um, and kind of reflecting to leadership, that's always also been the case as well. It's highly concentrated on few individuals. So mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, as as a parent, of course, we've learned at this point, we can't expect one or two people to raise one child without outside help. That's extremely unhealthy. But from the leadership perspective as well, one just cannot do all. So I wonder, you know, both being a, a leader, an intersectional leader, and a parent, how have those roles kind of blended and um, shape and reshape your views on both parenting and um, leadership? Oh, that's such a, I love that you bring all of those things together. And I think this is a space that I'm still exploring and understanding the impact on my leadership practice and, you know, my identity as an individual and how I approach life and purpose and think about community. And I thought a lot when I heard you talking about leaders kind of individually at the top, just how lonely and isolating that model is. And we hear about that all the time of people being lonely and isolated in their leadership practice. And it made me think of Adrian Murray Brown's emergent strategy and how do we think about leadership differently so that there's not one person at the top. So I think that that's, that's a space that I would return to if you're wanting to, you know, think further into why are we putting kind of this one person and expecting them to be kind of the everything um, and not thinking about collective wisdom or collective power or power sharing, um, you know, as multiplying our ability to create movements and to create change, which, which is what I think about a lot um, of what's possible when we do leadership well. Oh gosh. And how parenting plays into that for me. I think, 
the biggest thing um, is that we've completely stripped the kind of community village wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've colonized parenting. Maybe I would even be as brave to call it that. Yes. Um, and have lost so much of what we knew about caregiving and birth and what it means to, you know, steward and be collectively responsible for bringing our next generations into the world um, and to teach them love and wholeness as humans and to respect them as humans. And I think that has been one of the most surprising things for myself that I'm realizing as I journey into this is the just loneliness again. Um, So I think that that's something between, um, you know, both leadership and parenting is that there is kind of this expectation of be everything. Mm -hmm. And, we're, you know, creating these impossible expectations for primary care providers and kind of the default parent, um, you know, regardless of, you know, gender identity being, you know, mostly alone day after day in the mm-hmm. caregiving and providing um, of, of that for young children. Mm-hmm. And so I think where I've been excited is spaces that are using, you know, um, traditional doula wisdom, traditional um, birthing wisdom, midwife wisdom, um, understanding that there needs to be community spaces. And there's been a couple that I've gotten to have the privilege of participating in. There's a nonprofit in the Portland area called Partum Gardens. And so just the idea of getting birthing people together and creating space outside for them to engage with each other and be there and just build organic community with each other, which I think is really important just to build, to give people the opportunity and the repetitive opportunity to share space with other people who have shared experiences. And and I think that's a nice parallel between um, both birthing, birthing and leadership And then the other um, space is offered by the birthing center that I was able to um, receive care from. Mm -hmm. And they create a lactation space that's free to the community every other week. And so people are able to come and engage with others um, because, you know, perhaps this is true of all new experiences, but I'm definitely noticing like before I became a parent, I was not like, oh, there's the lactation space available or, you know, there's, um, you know, changing table or not, or this bathroom stall is large enough to bring a stroller in. Just like all of these weird things that I've, again, because of, you know, my own kind of non-parenting privilege, if you will, because it's such a large responsibility to take on, has not made me had to be aware of before and how fragmented and invisible parenting and caregiving still is in our society And to me, I think, you know, it's really been eye-opening to how we've perhaps made thinking about bodily autonomy, specifically around reproductive justice and reproductive choices in our body, a one issue, an abortion issue, when instead to me, I'm recognizing just how um, 
you know, our, our policies really haven't caught up to our society practice of care, mm-hmm. really haven't caught up to thinking about how we could be more collective and supporting caregivers and parents. So you asked for it. There's there's some of the fresh uh, new thinking that I'm still connecting and, and recognizing as I'm, you know, experiencing this for myself the first time um, mm-hmm. and also engaging with other parents in a different kind of dialogue now that I'm kind of in this shared experience of being on countless wait lists for childcare and mm-hmm. really understanding how we've fallen short to have yeah. some of that culture of care when we're thinking about how it's all of our responsibilities to, you know, steward and care for our next generation. I, I think that's very well said. And I think I acknowledge the privilege I have as well. You know, I don't have a human baby. I have a dog who's very demanding. Uh, <laughs> but compared to a human child, right? Like if I didn't have the freedom I do, and if I didn't have the privilege, privilege I do now, um, I probably would have been very limited. And I, I probably would have noticed a lot of the, um, like you said, um, it's invisible, like mm-hmm. care and parenting and uh, caretakers and caregivers. And um, I almost feel like, is it intentional? Is it intentional that the system, whoever that might be, is making people who provide care invisible? Um and I think that will, that's kind of like pretty dark thought. But mm. I feel like really, like you said, we need to catch up on policymaking. We need to, because really, if we think about it, we are raising the next generation. And this next generation, they are going to provide their own, you know, um, intelligence and their labor to the country and to own, their own community. That is the reason, the best reason to take care of them, right? Like, who who else can we rely on? Um, that actually reminds me of a kind of like a changing reality in China right now, where I'm from. Is um, China is known for, um, you know, literally the whole family raised one child. Um, that's what we do um, as a society. And I think in recent years, especially this recent couple of years, um, because of the aging society, and the government has been encouraging women to have more children. But the thing is, that's their demand or that's their want. But there's no enough support system for women to have children. Um, like, for example, it's super expensive to raise children. There's no enough care. Uh, there's no enough support system because everyone has to work really hard right now. Um, so as a way of protesting, women are just not having children. I think that's they are kind of, um, they're not saying it. They are not saying, you know, fuck this. I'm not going to have children like you make me. Um, but they are they are they are expressing their opinions through their action, which is to not have children. And mm. I think it makes so much sense, you know, like why should we? 
if if we are not getting the care and uh, support we deserve and desperately need, why should we have children? And then that goes to, of course, like you mentioned, the, our bodily autonomy, our um, reproductive rights. If that is not protected, why should we do that? It's dangerous. Like it really is dangerous. It's that level. So um, I think I'm rumbling a little bit here because obviously I don't have um, the experience as a parent, um, but I so agree with you. I think we we have so much to do. And um, yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. No, I think I think you bring up a really interesting, you know, line of thought around, you know, with your own experience of the decisions that people are feeling like they have to make around reproductive, um, you know, choices specifically in China. But I would also say like, I wonder, you know, if that's, we're going to see that in a lot of cultures. I think that the way that I'm seeing that out from my sense of place, you know, here in Oregon, even and even in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, and kind of, getting closer to mid-career. I'm not quite there yet. Um, but people making these impossible decisions based on the systems and the caregiving and um, safety net that that is or isn't available. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is, to me, what's more challenging right now is because of the way that capitalism operates, because of the way um, kind of linear career advancement, um, because of not acknowledging caregiving as something worthy of payment mm-hmm. um, or, you know, monetary payment and, and acknowledgement. Um, the narrative out there is you take time off to prioritize this and you jeopardize your ability to earn or advance. And what kind of opportunity is that for, you know, the fragileness already of anybody that doesn't fit the white male stereotypical mold of leadership to advance and to prioritize caregiving while they're also contributing in leadership spaces. So I don't have full formed, you know, theories or, you know, resources to point to on that. But I do think that just noticing it and noticing this impossible impossibleness and wondering, you know, is this one of those costs that people are having to pay to decide, Mm. you know, do I become or do I not become a parent or do I prioritize my career or Mm. can I do all of those things? And so I might be rambling a bit at this point too on that, but that's what I'm thinking. I think cost is a really good word for this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like what does it cost? Like I've heard something years ago, someone mentioned to me, um, they were in the middle of pursuing a career that is very demanding and uh, needs a lot of attention and doing. And one time they shared with me, I, and th- this is kind of paraphrasing and sort of quoting is, I have had to make a lot of sacrifices in my life in order to do this work. And I thought that was such a heavy sentence. But you are right, you know, be it a cost or sacrifices, like these are the choices we have to make in order to, I don't know, pursue whatever that is worthy 
in our opinion.、Mm-hmm. And at at what point that cost is too high? So, when I wonder if this is one of those consequences of you know we've got we have more more ish representation in a lot of spaces、um, you know for women and gender expansive people pursuing leadership. But we haven't necessarily changed the systems in which we're operating within. We're, you know, d- depending on identities, doing a lot of assimilation, which really is erasure、mm-hmm. to fit into systems. And I think some of the consequence of that is, you know, what what we feel like we are able and not able to do in our personal lives in order to continue advancing and being successful in those spaces. And, you know, we're talking about caregiving and children. But I think there is a lot of choices that people are having to make in this space, and、um, you know, reproductive is just kind of one of those first ones that floats up there. But I'm sure if we kept talking about this, there would be a whole list of ways that people are having to really contort themselves to be able to to stay in space and and to be able to have access to leadership and power. Yeah, and resources.、Mm-hmm. Um. Well, on that positive note, <laughs>、uh, we're not trying to scare young people off from pursuing leadership, <laughs> uh, uh, but it, it is good to have the reality check. So, on that positive note,、um, and as we wrap up this super great conversation, I, I, I have taken three pages of notes at this point. And、uh, how how do people follow your work? If you want people to follow your work, and how do people find you and connect with you,、um, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got our website. If you Google the Center for Women's Leadership, we will pop up. We're at Portland State University. We're on. On Instagram, we're also on LinkedIn. Any of those would be great ways to follow us, or you're welcome to to follow me personally. I welcome the opportunity to have conversation and and dialogue regularly because I think that's how we、um, get curious and further our understanding of these things because they're complex. You probably saw that in our conversation. We don't have all the answers. We're grappling with this and. The best thing I know that we can do right now is to continue to create space where we can examine and dialogue and build better practices for how we we deal with all of these complexities. So, welcome the conversation and appreciate us being able to have the opportunity to to talk about this today, Joe. Sure. Yeah, and I I have to say, you know, I follow your personal Instagram and it's been very educational for me personally. And it's just beautiful, you know, the, to share those moments.、Um, they can be high notes, they can be low notes, and、uh, it's just be very wonderful to see the journey you're on right now, Jessica. So thank you so much for sharing.、Um, and、um, on that note, the last thing I want to say is, as we enter the holiday season, and、um, we should both. Try and rest. Absolutely, that's what I'll be prioritizing over the next month. Is、um, not is, is resisting the the urge to do the kind of urgency that December often brings、um, because of a lot of the traditions and things that are out there. But my family this year will be spending time together and doing that in a way that honors rest and time with each other. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful, and I'll try to do the same. 
and that I'm going to hit stop recording.